Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your faithful, loyal, trusty, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Thanks for tuning in. We do this for you. If it weren't for you, I would be wasting my time. So <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Man, do we have a great show for you today. We are talking to Miami-based artist Kaladney, whose uh, art, sculptures, and installations are blowing up right now. But before we get into this interview, uh, of course, I want to encourage you to go to notrealart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there. And we're always, of course, celebrating and elevating amazing artists and their work. So you can always discover new talent on our website. So please check us out. Of course, if, you, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, please do so. Like and comment this episode. That helps make the algorithm gods happy. And so thanks for that. All right. Kaladni, the Miami-based artist whose art, sculptures, and installations are blowing up. I love talking to this guy because his roots are in industrial design, which is kind of the marriage between art and science. He studied ID design over at Syracuse University, and then he went on to get his MBA at NYU Stern School of Business, which is fascinating. It's always great to talk to artists who have their MBA. They just have a different perspective on how they practice their art and how they sell their art, and there's just you know, with that formal education, I think there's some empowerment there, some confidence there in running an arts practice and an arts business, which I find many artists who don't have that formal education struggle with sometimes. So it's great to hear Kaladni's story. Of course, there were moments of great doubt and risk and times where he thought about not pursuing his dreams as an artist, but he's stuck with it. He believed in himself. He doubled down. And now his work is really exploding in popularity. And I really enjoy it because it's fun work. It's thoughtful work, no doubt. And it's beautiful work, but it's interesting. It's definitely thought provoking, but it's also fun and accessible and democratic. And so I really appreciate that about his work. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation and hear from the one and only Kalatni. Kalatni, welcome to Not Real Art. Oh, thank you for having me. Did I get so, that right, Kaladni? Is that is that am I saying that correctly? 
Yeah, that's my last name, and it's what I go by. So most of my yeah. close friends either call me Kolodny or K. So I've kind of hey. rebranded my art career recently just under the Kolodny name. Nice. I love it. I love it. Homage to my dad, if nothing else. Right on. Right on. That's very cool. Well, you didn't really get your start as a full-time artist, did you? I mean, you were primarily in industrial design. You studied industrial design at Syracuse, yeah? Yeah. My life had a very weird, circuitous path to where I am today. Yeah. For school, I was stuck somewhere between art and engineering, and I couldn't figure out what to do because I had like both math and creative. And as you said, I ended up in industrial design. Mm-hmm. which I call problem solving with a purpose, right? Problem solving via art. And ironically, I worked in industrial design when I was in college and then post-college, I never worked in it again. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, I love, that's what I love about industrial design. It's sort of that combination of the art and science, right? It's the math and it's the design. It's the, you know, I have, I have several friends who are industrial designers and I just, you know, it's it's such a cool space to be in, certainly for those people who who dig it and love it because you, you really get to solve problems, as you say. Yeah, I called it sculpture with purpose. Right, 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 right. Very cool, very cool. Anyhow, from that, I ended up becoming an entrepreneur and ending up in the hospitality business. Oh, okay. Where I basically owned and operated bars, nightclubs, and restaurants for the next big <laughs> chunk of my life. Well, that's a whole nother podcast, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's a definitely a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is a PG-13 podcast. At least we try to keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. At nice. some point, I need to do a podcast about that part of my life. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, I mean, like so many artists, I guess just so many people, right? Finding their calling, finding their purpose, it's not always a straight line, right? I mean, it's two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. I mean, you're dancing, right? At the end of the day, taking the scenic route to life. And I and I have a similar background where it's like I've really just followed my bliss, so to speak, and been had the privilege and the and the courage and the opportunity to be able to just do cool shit, whatever I thought it might be. And it sounds like you had a similar journey. Yeah. Let me tell you, I'm a big fan of, I think it was Jim Rohn. It was like, you can have a job, a career, or a calling, right? right? A job, you flip burgers, it sucks. Career, yeah. you have domain expertise. You can make a bunch of money. You don't have to. You can love it. You can hate it, but it's a career. And a calling is something for all intents and purposes that you would pay to do. That's you know where you're spending your money. That's usually a good sign of what direction you should be going in, in my eyes. When I got out of college and I ended up in the hospitality business, it was my calling. I loved it. Slept it, ate it. Yeah. Like everything about it. I, I love that business. You know, I right. love the drinking. I love the culture. I love the late nights. I loved all that it stood for. I loved the transforming oneself. People's daytime personalities and their nighttime personalities are completely different and creating this kind of like fantasy world where people could escape from the city for a couple hours a night or a couple hours a week, trade that boring Wall Street job in for like some cr- for crazy experiences and stories to tell their grandkids, that type of stuff. So I loved it. Often happens, you kind of go through stuff. I had innumerable amounts of successes and failures. At some point, that calling became a career. Through the whole time, I was kind of making art. Like it was kind of always my hobby, my passion, my thing on the side, or whatever it was. And somewhere along that line and that path, that calling became a career. It was, you know, it was a paycheck and it was money was okay, but it was, it wasn't rewarding in any other capacity. And the art kind of was. And then I had like a hidden Instagram account with not my real name and a whole bunch of stuff. And another artist friend of mine, artist by the name of Joe Genevieve, who's become pretty successful in his own right, was like, dude, you have to put your name on it. Get in front of it. And I did. And the second I did, guess what? The universe started to tell me, whatever, you know, it started to work. Yeah, that's all true. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then that was like the beginning of what kind of has become kind of this long, even securitist art career. And the last six months has been the most interesting and the most fun and is proving to be some of the most compelling of my art career so far. Yeah. I mean, I love that story because I mean, part of what I'm hearing, and I think this is really relevant for a lot of people out there, which is to say, pay attention to what your friends tell you. (laughs) You touch on a few things. One is that notion that your calling became your career. I mean, you found success, you you found joy and success in a space, hospitality for a number of years. But over time, as we evolve as humans, sometimes what worked for us last year or 10 years from now ago doesn't work for us anymore today. And so your calling became your career. You decided, you know what, it's not my calling anymore. You were making art for probably spiritual reasons (laughs) more than anything, right? Feed your soul, keep your head together. But yet you were like so many artists, maybe shy or insecure or unsure or whatever. You don't want to put your name on it. And then your friend said, hey, man, you got talent. You got you get in front of this. Put your name on it. Be proud. Be out. Be proud. Right. And you listen and you were taking those cues and kudos for you, brother, because I mean, you know, you, you had the courage to take those risks. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an art in general, right? Like what's the famous thing? Well, I could make that. You could, but you didn't, right? Because most people, <laughs> right, right. Are, too, exactly. most people are too scared to do it, right? Yeah. And it's that failing forward. It's that having, if anything, it's the one, you know, social media is a weird thing, but like one of the good things is a lot of people take risks and they put themselves forward. Unfortunately, they usually don't show the bad stuff. They usually only show like the fairy tale good stuff, myself included. But the idea of most of the best art, stuff I've ever done has been a mistake of me trying to do something else. And it turned out really cool. And that became the direction, right? Right, right. You stumble, like I stumble forward constantly, that Mm -hmm. the bigger the risk you take, oftentimes, the more fun and the bigger the opportunity and the Mm -hmm. better, at least in my life, the better the outcome. It sucks at the time because it's scary as shit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we don't celebrate the failures enough, do we? I mean, in fact, we've created a culture or created a narrative that somehow failure is bad and only success is good. And that's so not the case. I mean, we only learn and grow and all the cliches about failure are true. I mean, you absolutely need those failures to to grow and learn. And, you know, from an industrial design perspective, just going back to your old college days, I mean, you know, the, the act of prototyping, right? The act of modeling, you're building models and prototypes so that you can see what's working, what isn't working. Is it going to fail or succeed? And that old story about the post-it note, famous famous uh, story about the at 3M, you know, about how the post-it note was a failure, right? <laughs> it was, yeah. Right. I mean, that's PayPal, right? Like almost every famous business and half the businesses you hear about start as one thing and pivoted into something else, right? Because, you know, you have a hypothesis. You're like, oh, I think this is a thing. You go try it out. And then when you put stuff out into the wild, like putting things out into the wild is really the, the most challenging stuff. I try to tell people all the time, by the way, I often have trouble accepting this myself, this advice, but I tell people like, Push it out before you're ready. I have a thing that I tell other artists all the time. I call it my 80% rule, which is when it's 80% done, ship it. Because the difference between 80 and 100%, yeah. almost always, when I show someone my 80% work and I show someone my 100% work that I think is marketably different, they're like, right. yeah, looks the same. 
And like, so <laughs> we, like, we have this idea that that last little bit, that's what's going to make it really great. And it's just not right. And we right. spend, it's like the 80, 20 rule. We spend 80% of our time getting at that last 20%. And if we just iterated faster and push things out quicker, we would get the more results. You know, it's like, you know, the famous story about the pottery class. Tell me, please. There's like a famous story about a pottery class and they basically had split the class into two rooms, two halves. And they say, this one half, you guys make the best most perfect pot you could possibly make. Like take your time, make it. And then the other half of the class, they said, just make as many as you can make. Just knock them out as fast Mm -hmm. as you can knock them out. Mm -hmm. And like three days later, they had all the pots and they went and showed in front of like a panel of pottery experts or throwing Mm -hmm. throwing experts, whatever the case may be. And without fail, the people who did tons of them had just markedly better work, right? Because they tried a bunch of different things. It didn't work out so right, good. Right, right, whatever. And it was that yeah. act of repetitive act of doing over and over and over again. And for all intents and purposes, failing that makes, whether it be your technique a little better, makes the polish a little better, makes an idea that springs up out of nowhere better. And that's the hardest part is like trying stuff that don't work. Yeah. I do it every day. I have a piece, literally a piece that's sitting in my studio now that I started with full intent of exactly how this thing's going to work. And I was playing with some new resins and trying some things that I've not really done before. And I'm like, okay, what I've done is completely ruined it. This thing is hideous. (laughs) (laughs) And so then like I tried something different and did something that like I would never have done. I never would have planned making some swirly cues around with this resin and seeing kind of what it does. Like just something that's not me. It's a little too hippy dippy for my look, but I'm going to put a chose different materials because of it, and I'm going to finish the work, push it to its logical right. end, it's actually turning out kind of cool, right? And it's something I yeah. never would have done in a gazillion years unless right. I mistaked my way into it. Those things, you just have to be, oftentimes we're just not open to those things. We're not willing to be like, we're like, ah, it's ruined right. and like throw it down. When I ruin something, I try to finish it anyway and just see mm-hmm. where it ends up because it's probably going to suck anyway, but at least I got to try something different. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, you've hit on a few things. I've had these conversations myself with artists who are, you know, I think by nature perfectionists. And I say to them, you're seeking perfection. No one cares, but you, <laughs> you know what that, I mean? Like no one's going to know that. Yeah. Literally nobody gives a shit. Like you're right. the artist. They believe whatever you're selling them is yeah. what you're selling them, right? That that was your vision. They don't know that it wasn't the vision in your head wasn't complete. No one's aware of that except you and your head. And it's so hard to separate oneself from that. But Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've shown people stuff that's like not even close to done in my head. They're like, oh, that's amazing. I'm like, I'll buy that. I'm like, okay. (laughs) How many times I've gotten in my own way. But that's the human condition, right? Especially artists where it's, you know, you're doing stuff that's risky and that feels uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and Yeah. You have a unique perspective too, right? Because having come from an industrial design background, right? There's a rigor around discipline and constraints and managing limited resources and trying to get capacity out of certain materials, whatever it is, right? And so there's there's a mindset that you bring to making art that a lot of artists don't have, which I feel like is really helpful if artists could learn that. You know? By the way, you said a great word there, which is constraint. Blue sky is often horrible, right? It's like the looking at the blank page. Like the idea right. of constraining your work to a particular set of something in a particular style, if you will, right? This new series I'm working on now, Balls, right? It, these fears, you know, it's a kind of a weird security story how this came to be, but I've been very rigorous in terms of 
restricting myself and I've let the materials evolve and kind of the shapes evolve, but I'm sticking to what this aesthetic is. And I'm just mm-hmm. doing something like if I could only build with spheres, if that was my medium, the sphere, where could the art go? And using those restrictions has actually made the art better. You know, I'm playing with scale, I'm playing with surface, I'm playing with material, I'm playing with juxtaposition. At the end of the day, I'm playing with balls, right? Keeping that constraint, I think, is personally is making the, the work more interesting. Well, what I well, one of the things I love about your work is that it connects to the kid inside. It's so p- playful and fun as well, right? I mean, on a certain level, not too long ago, I took my kid to a birthday party and at the birthday party, there was a ball pit and the kids were jumping in the ball pit, having a great time. Of course, I'm sure they all ended up with some sort of virus or <laughs> bacteria yeah, or whatever. But the point is, is that we have these experiences with balls, whether they're ball pits or playing basketball as a kid or baseball or whatever, soccer. Say nothing of the kind of organic nature of a, of a sphere. I mean, it connecting us to, to nature. I mean, nothing's more natural than a circle, if you will. So your work sort of works on so many levels. I think that that's part of the reason why it's resonating. Yeah. And I think that there's the, you know, we live on a big circle, right? We live on a big sphere from yep. the ground up, so to speak. Yeah, right. It's made writing my, if you've seen like the 8,000 incarnations of my artist statement, you would be, you know, I, I like brush at some point on all these things, but it is, it's our, it's our childhood, right? Like yeah. it's the first thing we do, we play catch. There's something I think that connects everybody that way, right? It's, it's like one of those uniform forms. And so putting that restriction on myself and making that my medium has been like a really, really interesting exercise. That and surface. This particular series lately, I've been playing with the idea. I'm using a lot of like these very reflective surfaces and kind mm-hmm. of mirrored surfaces that also puts the viewer in the work, mm-hmm. right? So like you receive your environment reflected in it. You see kind of yourself reflected in it. It kind of provides multiple pictures at the same time because like each ball serves as its own reflection of its of the world around it. And then they reflect yep. against themselves. So you have this kind of layering of environments and layering of both being in the work as well as observing the work. So mm-hmm. there's like this kind of like it kind of jumps between your brain. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you know, seeing the work for what it is and seeing the work for how you're in it and how you kind of interact with the work changes a little bit. Lately, I've also been playing with like really huge installations, blowing these things up. And by the way, that was a scary risk. Like, hey, I'm going to figure out how to manufacture these, track them down, and then spend a whole bunch of money that have no idea what I'm, (laughs) how it's all going to work out, but I'm going to do it anyway, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And those, I think the experience is even more interesting because like it's at a large scale, it really encompasses the whole environment. If all goes well, I'm going to be doing some really, really, really huge ones shortly, like hundreds of feet long where it's not just an exhibit. Like I'm going to be creating like an environment Yeah. and I'm curious to see like at that level of scale, what it does to people. Right. right. Like has right. you have to maze through it and yeah. fully interact it and create something kind of magical. Love that. Scale. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, exactly. And isn't that, it is absolutely playing with scale is, is such a magical thing. I mean, it really is that what it does to one's perception and one's mind and just one's feeling it's a, it can be a very visceral, uh, of course. So I want to go back a minute ago, you were talking about this experiment you're doing in the studio today or this week, playing with some new materials and things and sort of seeing where it leads you. But let's go back months, years and talk about how your journey to discovering this 
body of work, the spheres, the balls. I mean, it's become a body of work for you that you've become known for in in some ways. And it's had lots of iterations. How did you land at a place? What led you to the power of the sphere and the circle and the ball and and this whole body of work? Yeah. So I've I've had kind of like three major incarnations of my art life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I came from the hospitality business. So I came from nightclubs and night times and bad things. And so the first series of work that kind of, I had done like some pop art work with some mathematical formulas that I was playing with for, for some time that sold okay. And then the next kind of evolution of my work was I played around with like a lot of the idea of addiction. You know, I had some addiction in my family. I've been around it from the hospitality world, but all the things we were addicted to that weren't drugs. I played around with the idea of using like, you know, drugs as the metaphor and all the other things that we were addicted to and had a bunch of success with that work. But a lot of other people were doing it. It wasn't super original or at the time it was, but a lot of other people were in and around playing in that universe. The next kind of series of work, I always was kind of fascinated by language and words. And I always actually hated my own handwriting. So I wanted to kind of use it to like force myself to make that part of the work. And I had a series of work that I actually formulated mostly during COVID, which had to do with writing and my ADD thoughts layering with each other on the page and on the canvas and doing kind of these oil paintings of like words on top of words on top of words. And those sold absolutely zero, almost none. Then I found a CNC machine on the internet and started working on turning those into 3D, which were a little more interesting. And those sold actually a little bit, but they weren't really doing it. And they weren't really capturing my, I kind of went down this road and I was doing it, but it wasn't, I was playing with some NFTs at the time and was kind of lost. And then, so this is going back actually not even that long ago, which just shows to go. Yeah. This is like, let's call it six, eight months ago. Let's call it July of last year, July of 22, I was kind of, I was truly at one point, actually, you know, the art wasn't selling as good as I wanted. I kind of missed the boat on the NFT thing. I was debating, like I was trying to figure out what to do. Like I was going to be at a job. Like I was Mm -hmm. ready to go back Mm -hmm. to work. And Mm -hmm. deep down in my heart, I've always wanted to be an artist and kind of stuck with me. And I told myself, I have to give myself like one last serious shot where I don't distract myself, where I focus 100%, where I'm not trading something on the side or doing some half-ass shit here or there. I'm going to give myself six months to see if I can make something happen. And where this originally came from is I used to doodle when I was younger. And I used to make these doodles. They almost look like frog eggs, like little circles, circles and circles and circles and circles. And it started as paintings. And it started as a handful of paintings of like kind of these circles and they were kind of geometric and they were kind of cool. And I was like, Mm -hmm. but I'm always like, it's my industrial design always comes back. I'm Mm -hmm. a 3D person. I like things physically in the real world. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if I could do this. Balls can't be expensive or hard to find. So let me try to do some of that. I started with little wood balls that you bought on Amazon. And then I found, I started making stuff with with ball pit balls, ironically, which come in a variety of sizes if, if one did not know. I kind of stuck with this idea and these kind of works behind me is where they mm-hmm. first grew out of. And then as I grew with them, they started to get more attention. They started to get a bunch of attention on social media. I had like one post that had like a million views or a million and a half views. And nice. like I'd never had anything close to that in my life before. Right, right. I was like, oh, wow. So something is engaging, right? And so like yeah. I kept poking and pestering and a bunch of people were interested. I sold a couple things. That's usually a good sign, like when people are reaching out. And then once again, the idea of scale and the idea of blowing this up came to me. And, you know, I believe you need to take kind of some big risks every now and again. 
and I had a friend who runs a big art music festival. It was here mm-hmm. in Miami. And I said, hey, can I do a big installation? He's like, well, you kind of missed the window for us to actually pay you to do it. But yeah, you can. Sure. Why not? I said, good. Yeah. I'll, I'll, doesn't matter. I'll do it. And so I had this idea in my head. I was making these sculptures that look like this up behind you. I said, what if I made them 15 feet tall? And then tried to figure that out. And so that became kind of like this track. And I built stuff in CAD and I drew them in Blender and I like made layouts of what it was going to look like and built this platform and had a whole plan, figured out how to get these things fabricated, found a whole team, hired people to help me with the carpentry and all this other stuff. And I built this thing and it looked exactly like the pictures. And people were like, whoa. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Right. I was like, wow, this is cool. I'm not too bad after all. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's exactly what that exact feeling like this worked. And then social media, I always understood social media, but I never, until you have one, you don't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I had two social media hits on both TikTok and Instagram that between the two videos, they have like 110 million views. Amazing. Congratulations for that. That's awesome. Yeah. So my TikTok following went from 20,000 people to 120,000 people. My Instagram following went from 12,000 people to 77,000 people in a matter of two months. And once again, then you put yourself out there. This goes to sometimes you have to just take risks. I probably shouldn't even tell the stories because it'll kill the illusion. No, but you I, absolutely need to tell it. <laughs> I did this art festival, which was the week before Art Basel. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have this whole pitch together. I have this whole thing. So I sent out. I still am represented by a couple of galleries. And, and so I reached out to a couple of them and say, hey, can you guys put this anywhere? Two of them said, sure. One of them said, we're going to put you at the Ace Gallery, said they're going to put me at the Sagamore Hotel. I said, great. And so this exhibit was quite big. So I was going to cut it in half, put half this way and half another place. And another friend of mine said, we have another event for you as well. And I'm going to put it there. Broke one down, went to go install it, installed everything in the hotel. No problem. Then went to go install at this other venue. And they're like, we're not ready for you. Come back tomorrow. I said, oh, okay. Pack up the truck again, go away, hire everybody again, go back the next day, unload the truck. Oh, no, you can't do it today. Can you come on Thursday? Basically like two or three days in a row of like me showing up and they're like, oh, no, we can't get it done today. I said, okay, no problem. So I'm like a little, wasn't really where I wanted to be. I was a little, a little upset, whatever, just annoyed. Frustrated, frustrated. Yeah, yeah, right. Art Basel was starting. So the Scope Art Fair, I had like a VIP pass through one of my friends. So I was like, oh, let me go to that. It's opening night. I'll go check out the VIP thing. And it's, yeah. I, I actually like Scope. It's one of my favorite fairs. Yeah, it's a good I show. For like yeah. kind of contemporary art. Lo and behold, bump into a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in years who was doing brand deals for the fair. I said, oh, this is what I just did. He's like, oh my God, that's incredible. We need to show it to the, the guy who owns fair. I said, sure. Said, Follow me. So I followed him around for like an hour. Like literally like a puppy dog following him around. There was like some sculpture garden out back. Hey, we finally show it to the owner of the fair. He's like, oh my God, this is super cool. And I said, you know, I'm supposed to do an install somewhere else, but I would love, obviously I would love to do it here. That's more interesting to me. Taking the, you know, the opportunity presents itself. You present itself. Of course. Yes. Seize the moment. Hey, he goes, give me 30 minutes. I have to make a phone call. I said, no problem. So 30 minutes, he comes back. He goes, look, here's the deal. We paid for a large installation to be put at the very front of the fair. It's stuck in customs, and I don't believe it's going to get out. I've just checked with the artist, the other artist, to see if it's cool. Like, if it does get out, if we can work together. But would you be willing to install your installation at the very front of Scope? I said, <laughs> seriously? He's like, I have nobody to help uh, you. I have no yes. no staff I can give you. And it has to be done by 11 in the morning. Could you be here tomorrow at 7? I was like, yeah, of course. 
done. Sure. Yes. Had no idea. Until you put yourself out there, until you try weird things, until you force yourself, until you take these weird opportunities, when you take weird risks and weird opportunities, weird shit presents themselves. Yeah. And next thing I know, lo and behold, I had the featured installation at my favorite art fair. Right. And that has obviously opened a bunch of doors and led to other installations and people calling me from all over the place and sculpture parks and sculpture fairs. Call, like, And so that's now exploded what this is between that and the social media almost instantly overnight. What a beautiful story, man. I just love that so much because, I mean, it's such a human story as well. I mean, it could be applied in any number of industries in any number of ways. It's self-doubt sets in. You have a choice. You can either buy into the self-doubt or you can change your attitude, double down and take a chance to change your life. In your case, you say, you know what, I'm going to double down on me. You go back to your old sketchbooks and sort of remember the circles you used to play with and just start playing and experimenting and saying yes to things, yes to things, yes to things and and, and investing, taking risks, right? Because you had to invest your own money and you you weren't sure where this was all going. And the doors of fate start opening up. That's what it is, right? Luck is my girlfriend always says they're always lucky because they work, you know, they work real hard and find themselves into positions to allow them to be lucky. Yep, yep, yep. And once again, that was a series of, of circuitous events. Like I just happened, to, you know, and some was relationships, and some was stuff that I brought from my past, and some was being in the right place, and some was making something that was cool, and some was having the ability to get it actually done in the time allotted. And so all of those things come together. And all of a sudden, now you have like a really interesting thing, you know, that and the social media, it can change lives overnight. I now actually have like on a different side, because I know we're talking like kind of business here. I had so many inbounds about the balls that I now like sell that as a separate business to event companies and other things. And so that's becoming its own business in its own right. And that was, wow, I've answered 600 messages today. Maybe I should put a website up. Let's, yeah, right. let's and by the way, the website sucks. I, it has to get redone early this year. Like I just slapped it together. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But let me tell you. Yeah, that, maybe, you need, maybe you need to get an assistant. <laughs> yeah. And so now I'm super excited. And now this stuff is really interesting. I'm doing much more of these installations. And what's cool is they're kind of temporary. I've now found some fabricators to help me to do these same installations. Like if people want them more permanent, to do them in steel at scale. Nice. Yeah, seven foot steel balls laid up into one another. I'm close to doing one of those. I'm in actually a super interesting position, which is that I'm going to play because I can build things temporary and like the the ones that are made out of big steel stuff are going to be expensive, right? Because Mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of fabrication involved and fucking heavy. Um, (laughs) It's like moving that shit is going to be yeah. Huge. By the way, shipping costs more than the, the stuff for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. But the idea of something, I haven't done it yet, so I'm very excited because I think I have the first person I'm going to do it with who's going to going to try it, which is that I'm going to charge someone for a temporary exhibit at their house or their real estate or wherever it is mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. build something. And if they like it and they want to buy the permanent one, then that price comes off of the permanent installation. Nice, right? nice. And that way someone can like, instead of having to spend 50, 100 grand, whatever the ridiculous price of a huge one is, they can do a, a more inexpensive one and then... I'm going to try something different. I've never done it before. Yeah. And I don't think anyone has just because usually big sculptures are either built or they're not. So, right, right, right. I have a technical question. And, sure. you know, if this is proprietary information, <laughs> you know, no, that you don't true. feel like sharing, please tell me. But the smaller spheres, or when I say small, I mean, I don't know, basketball up to room size, are they inflated? Is yeah. it a mylar? Like, what's the substrate? And, and how are you actually? 
Yeah, they're they're inflatables. They're, they're giant inflatable, inflatable right. balls. So they have a large rubber. They're a plastic, basically a plastic balloon that pumps with a kind of a mylar shell, a mylar outer mm-hmm. coating. And the nice thing is they can be inflated and deflated and inflated. And if you're not like me and you actually take good care of them, you can actually do them a lot. If you're like me, well, now I take better Eat care them of back, them, but I just, the, <laughs> I just learned the hard way. They're, they're not as sturdy as one would imagine. Right, they right. They look like steel, but they don't act like steel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so those are basically giant gargantuan right. inflatable balls. Right. What I love about that, I mean, it's just so genius because, I mean, as we've already alluded to, I mean, one of the most biggest costs related to art is is shipping art around, insuring yeah. it, shipping it. And you found a medium and a, and a material that arguably is perhaps the easiest to ship and insure. You know? sure, I, like, can, I can put up a pretty big install in a day and I can right. take the same thing down in about two hours. Right, right? And right. so it gives me a it gives me a bunch of flexibility, you know, and I can pack things into a truck and into a cardboard box. And I stumbled into that. Yeah. Well, the question I was going to ask is for those outdoor installations, how do you secure them from the wind? <laughs> because if you get a big gust of wind, man, I don't know what's going to happen. So it's funny you say that because when I first built it, the first one was outdoors, like in the middle of a field. Right? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. They have like hooks on them to hold down, but they're rated for two to five miles an hour or something like that. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right, right, right. Five miles an hour is just not hard to hit. Like I can breathe at five miles an hour. When I first did it, I had an idea conceptually of how it would hold. It actually works out even better is basically what happens is as you attach, there's like a bottom layer of balls that are like basically slung to the ground. The next layers, I use a special tape and, and sometimes wire to like hold them and pressure them into place, but mm-hmm. they kind of become... The more balls you add, the stronger the substructure gets. So like nice. the bigger it yeah. gets, the more sturdy it actually becomes. And actually, when I did the first installation, I'd like done the installation. I was really happy about it. And, you know, I went home to like an art festival. Like I went to go take a shower because I was gross. The owner of the festival sends me a picture. He's like, is this supposed to be like this? And I'm looking at the picture. I was like, no, it looks fine. And he's like, zoom in. And like I zoom in and there's like little children climbed to the very top of this thing. <laughs> And I'm like, no, no, that's not what's supposed to happen. No, get them off right now, please. And so like I literally jump back in the car, drive 100 miles an hour to go get back to throw little children off this thing. And, oh, amazing. And it just shows to go, you like all this planning, all this design, all this fancy stuff. And if you don't put the do not climb sign on, it, it all comes apart <laughs> quickly. <laughs> and I'm but laughing in part because, you know, if I were five, six, seven, eight years old, I'd be that oh, kid you'd best. be telling to get down. <laughs> it was awesome. Hey, it's yeah. good to know that I can support children. But my business brand was like, oh, my God, the insurance. Uh, oh, yeah, you know. right. Of course. Well, speaking of your business brain, you have the dubious honor of being the third artist. And we're, you know, I don't know, this is going to be end up being 200 and 20 episodes or something, but you're going to, out of all those episodes, you have the dubious honor of being the third artist that we've had with their MBA. Only two artists precede you because it's not a thing, right? You really, it's rare to find an artist who has their MBA. And so my question to you is how has your MBA going to business school, how has that helped you as an artist, because of course, you know, the stereotype of an artist is, you know, they, they're not good at business or they hate business or what, you know, whether they're not good at math, you know, whatever. And here you are, you know, obviously we've already established you're good at math because you're an industrial designer and that is the, 
the interesting connection of math and, and art and what have you. But then you went on to go to business school. And of course, business school is great at teaching us how to make a dollar and turn a dollar into three at a profit. So talk a little bit about your business school experience and how that has helped you as an artist. Yeah. So I went to business school. It's when my hospitality career was kind of coming to an ungraceful close. And I didn't know what I want to do with my life. It was before I had the courage to go do art. And, you know, I thought I wanted to go in finance or do something. And so I thought that's what I had to do. It was good because at the time it provided me some structure. If I were to give anybody advice about business school, there's nothing you can't learn in, in business school that you can't learn off of a couple blogs that exist today. Like, you know, do you go to AVC or you go to like Union Squares Ventures blog? They had a, an MBA Monday that teaches you basically every single thing and probably more than you ever would learn in business school. The reason you would theoretically go to, the only reason I would suggest someone go to business school is for the network. Thus, I would only recommend going to one of the top schools because that network is super valuable. Once you start getting out of the top 10, top 20, like when you get out of Harvard, MIT, Stanford, NYU, Columbia, once you get out of that realm, the network, I would assume, dissipates quickly. And it's just too easy to learn and too cheap to learn these days. And it did saddle me with 150 grand worth of debt. That would be my two cents on business school. At the time for me in my life, where my life was in many respects falling apart, the structure of actually going back to school as an adult, actually going back to school and appreciating learning for learning was interesting to me. I went late. I was in yeah. my late thirties, early forties when I went. Yeah. So yeah, it was like 2008, nine. So yeah, it was 39, give or take. It was slightly different for me than I would imagine for most, but I'm of the belief and excuse me, going back to the idea of artists with MBAs, I'm a huge believer that People like, oh, you're an artist and just assume it's, you know, rainbows and sunshines and painting and finger paints and whatever. If I could spend 30% of my time making art, that's a win. I always look at the artist as an entrepreneur. We're basically a small business. Some people see that business, some people don't. But the amount of time, you're basically the CEO of a small venture where like I'm in charge of marketing, I'm in charge of social or social outreach, I'm in charge of inventory, I'm in charge of general finances. Oh, by the way, I'm yeah, also creating, yeah. creating this stuff. There was a great artist I spoke to not long ago named Simon Bull. And he's like, it's weird because you're both in the front office, right? You're like both the CEO or you're the, in the C-suite. And at the same time, you're the guy out back in the factory making widgets. You have to like put one hat on and take that out, put this hat on. I find that's really interesting. Like you, I actually have a self-promotion at this point, but I have a podcast where I talk to artists about not their art, because like I get that and there's plenty of people talk to them about that. But I, I talk about the business and like, what do their sales channels look like? How do conversions work for you? Is there business? You know, some artists are still all gallery. Now we live in a world right. where you can have zero galleries, right? Some people yep. like yep. split the difference. As an artist, I'm fascinated to understand one, how people figured it out. Two, the inflection point in people's careers. When could you have the courage to stop doing it as a side hustle? How did you get the money to do it? Like, when did you know that this was a thing? And so all these things, like these type of conversations, I find the most compelling because they're the most helpful to me. And I just think it's interesting. And I think that most people don't look at artists that way, right? They have like this disassociation that artists have any skill other than flittering creativity. And it's just right. not the case. The best artists out there, look at Damien Hurst. Man doesn't make his own art. 
Like he had a team of 120 people. Look at Murakami has 300 employees in Japan and 30 in the United States. Jeff Coons. Jeff Coons has 160 employees on 27th Street or 29th Street or whatever it is. All skilled artists amongst them. That's, I think, the other thing people don't realize. Like the artists that most people know, like their contemporaries, like, wow, these guys are amazing. The reason people know them is they produce an amount of work that is unproducible by a single human being. You can't have the scale to be an artist that's successful if you everything is by your own hand to a certain extent. And so like if you need thousands or tens of thousands of pieces to satisfy the demand of your market, at some point, you just have to get help. Ai Weiwei, he had a village of people making porcelain seeds. There's like a billion porcelain seeds, right? Like he couldn't have done that. With the rest of his time on this earth, he couldn't have made that exhibit. Right. And people lose sight of and even artists, I say, lose sight of that. Like, I'm always interested, what did it look like building your team? What is your team? Actually, I'm, I'm excited because for the first time in a while, I actually have been interviewing for an assistant for the first time in a long time. Because like, I've gotten to the end of my, I, I'm spending too much time on things that I can easily outsource and focus yeah. my time on things that actually generate money, like making art and making Well, exactly. And it is about getting to that point where that really makes sense, right? Because it's a luxury for a while, right? Like it's a luxury and you're like, you know what, I'm building my business. And then eventually that luxury becomes an absolute necessity to get to the next level, right? Because you end up holding yourself back, trying to do everything yourself. But yet at the same time, sometimes that's what you got to do if you're a small business. But that's what it is. Like that's, and like, I always look at the artist some people think it's the means it, but I, I don't. Like I think I look at the, every artist as a small business, right? Whether that means 100%. they're Symposian or whether that means they're on Etsy. Like every artist is a small yeah. business. Yeah, every artist is a small business and every artist is a brand. I know some artists, you know, heads are exploding right now hearing that. But I mean, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. If you're defining what your brand is, that's a good thing. You have the right to define what your brand is. Like that, if you don't oh. do it, other people are going to do it for you. And by the way, I'm of the school, like I'm a thousand percent as an artist. And I think there's bunches of different types of artists, right? There's artists who just like have to create and do whatever. And like, it's for the craft and it's for whatever. Then there's artists who treat it more as a business. There's all the people in between. There's online, there's all, all, all this stuff. But I've when I've created art, I always wanted to create art where when you looked at it, you're like, oh, that's a Kaladni where you're known for something, where the aesthetic is so in tune to what you are and what you do that there's no question that that's what you do, right? That's right. By the way, to take the art hat off for a second, put the business hat back on, that makes everything else in your repertoire that much easier, right? It makes sales easier. It makes outreach and distribution easier. It makes all of these things easier because you're laser focused on what that is and you are known for X, and by the way, if you go to almost every artist, whether it be go through every artist in your Instagram that you love, and you usually love them because they make something that's like consistent, a style of work that like you completely relate that style of work to that person. I've sort of, ref- you know, we use the word aesthetic a lot, but in, and that is appropriate, of course. But the other word is voice, right? Like finding your voice as an artist, you know, and what is that voice? And, and it takes time. You know, there's no rush sure. here. But yeah, I mean, if you have a, a distinctive, unique, singular, original voice aesthetic, I mean, people are, that's what your brand becomes and, and that's the opportunity. And, you know, I mean, I understand that it can also, you know, the challenge is 
how do you, if you find a voice or an aesthetic that resonates commercially, and by commercially, I mean resonates with collectors and they want to buy your work. You know, I know some artists can feel sometimes trapped by that. It's the golden handcuffs. It's like, well, wait a minute. Do I have to keep doing this or can I change? And there's a risk there. And I think that's also part of the interesting challenge of running your business. I mean, how do you keep producing your work that people love and know and trust while, of course, continuing to grow, evolve and innovate? You know, I think a lot of that is for many people is like one of those, like a self-sabotaging thing. Worry about making hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars selling whatever that that thing is. And then you can worry about, maybe I can switch, right? <laughs> right, right, and, right. And to. I had that self-sabotaging voice for a while. But what if I can't do... Uh, you can reinvent yourself again and again and again. And by the way, it took me mm-hmm. 10 years to get to... Like, I'm a square one again, right? I'm just at the beginning yeah, right. again. It's not an easy process. Right. You know, you just right. don't know. But I'll tell you the things that, at least this time around, work is that if you commit to it, and you give it a hundred percent and full focus and don't let yourself get distracted by other crap, the sled moves faster. That's for sure. And that focus is key. What you're saying. I mean, you know, as creative people, as artists, you know, I think our tendency is to say, yes, you know, yes, yes, that's cool. I'm going to do that. Or, you know, I'm going to explore that and you can distract yourself and lose focus. I'm the king of it, man. Jingly keys like squirrel. (laughs) I'm all over the place. But going back to another thing you said about brand, my podcast had a brand. It was called This is the Business We've Chosen is how it started mm-hmm. out is because it was art business. And then when this series started to take over, I realized that I wanted to at least have my brands align. And so I rebranded the podcast Ballsy and have the balls to sell art. So mm-hmm. it was more in conjunction with the work that I'm doing. So it was like Love it. thinking of myself as a brand as opposed to thinking mm-hmm. of myself as only an artist that makes X. Like I want to think more holistically and have all the different right. parts lead back and to a certain extent be obvious. I think one of the things that we're, we're talking about without actually talking about it is, is this idea that the rules have changed and, you know, artists are freer now than ever, arguably, right? Because yeah. in the fifties, certainly as, I mean, fine art has always been fine art, but I mean, certainly as a contemporary art market has come to life, you know, commercially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, this idea that there was one business model, i.e. the white cube gallery, you know, like that's the only way, that's legitimately only way that an artist can be credible and, and, and be successful. And, you know, what we've learned over the last 25 years as technology has completely changed the, the status quo and sort of made gatekeepers obsolete in many ways. I think what we're learning, right, is that the artist gets to define now who they are and how they show up and what they want to make because there is way more uh, opportunity now than ever. Choose your business model, <laughs> right, because there, there are many more business models. I think that's what it is. I think social has – if you didn't have gallery representation years ago, it was over, right? You had no career. Like there was no – like maybe you sold to some friends or something. But I know artists who, you know, I mean, usually at some point, if you're selling enough art, galleries will carry your work. Mm. But I know artists who make six, seven figures direct to consumer. You have to remember that the model, the old art model was structured so against the artist, right? 50% plus all cost of production, plus all cost of everything. It was predatory, to be honest. And it's a vestige of an old time and an old way. I would imagine the number of artists that are able to build their own audience and mm-hmm. able to translate that into it. Like at the end of the day, the audience is the only thing that matters, 
right? Yes. You have audience. That's right. You can, you that's can right. Do that's right. That's right. Whether it be Mr. Beast selling burgers or that's why the, the private equity guys of tomorrow are going to be those with the biggest audience. And so building and developing that audience is interesting and hard, but that's going to be, especially now as we're getting into all this AI stuff and we're this new generation of tech that's coming, having the audience is going to be the skill set. Figuring out ways to constantly, you know, interact, engage, and entertain, because that's going to be most people's main sales channel. And to a certain extent, a lot of galleries I know that's how they now find artists, right? They find them not because someone suggested or they pitched or they got a deck. They got it because they saw their work on Instagram. They're like, "Hey, who represents you?" Yeah. Right. And so as that changes, it just means as creators we have. There's just so much more power in our own hands. By the way, it also takes more work. I spend a minimum of an hour a day dealing with social editing videos. Like I do everything myself, right? Which hopefully will end at some point because I'm not particularly great at it. But the fact that how to manage that time, and that goes back to our conversation about team and budget and what Mm -hmm. you have to do, Mm -hmm. you know, and debatably one creates the other. Right. Yes. The better the content right. is, the more audience, the more business you have. Like, so, you know, you have to judge those things correctly. Mm. I would have had a, my opinion on that has changed a thousand percent in the last 60 days just mm. because of the, the, I didn't realize the power that one or two posts could really have. The raw, just the visibility alone. There was one point when I was getting two to three million views a day across platform. Wrap your head around those numbers for a sec as an artist. Like that's yeah. incomprehensible. That's right. Talk about the reach. Yes. Right. And so I was like, I always thought social media was cute and good and whatever. Now I truly appreciate, especially now that they've switched the algos right. to be like, if you make cool shit, you win. Right. I feel like Gary Vee for a second, but it's it. You said the word conversion earlier. I mean, it's like, okay, it's one thing to have the audience, but then making sure you have things in place to convert those audience into into dollars, right? Because, you know, not everybody's going to be able to afford your high end one one of a kinds. But do you have a, a merchandising strategy, for example, that allows people to buy your work for 50 bucks, you know, for example? It's funny you say that because up until a couple of weeks ago, the answer is no. Right. right. And so now I'm working on making like smaller, cheaper sculptures that are much more approachable from a price standpoint. I'm trying to do some print on demand stuff where I, you know, take close up pictures that mm-hmm. it's not quite the same, still has the the feel and energy mm-hmm. of some of the pieces where I yeah. convert those into something someone could get a print. So I'm I'm actually exposing myself to that now for just that reason, right? To capture all those segments. I'm not technically, by the time this launches, it'll probably be announced, but there's an art fair called Transfix, which is basically like a traveling monumental sculpture exhibit that's going to start later this year, which I'm fortunate Uh enough to be part of. And one of the things they have is a gift shop, exit through the gift shop, of course. Now I'm trying to translate my work into like gifts. Yes. I'm like working with Chinese manufacturer to make like, you know, the, do you ever remember like the magnet with the metal shavings on it? Like you're oh, all totally. To yeah, 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 totally. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm basically trying to make one of those like different size balls. So basically like you have my sculpture on your desk and you Love can basically that. like rebuild my installation on the desk. And by the way, as soon as I figure out how to do it, like I'll sell that on my site, right? It's cute. Right. It's, it's just that it's like, oh, I could get something that I like and appreciate for 50 bucks or 30 bucks, whatever it might be. I have a bunch of artist friends who started selling toys 
I think that's a great, I'm just learning about that whole market. By the way, shameless plug for a friend of mine, but you should check out, if you're looking for good fabricators, check out Pretty in Plastic here in Los okay. Angeles. Pretty okay, in Plastic, sure. Julie B is a dear friend. She's a dear friend. They do incredible work. I was looking at your site. I saw you guys do Design Con and I was like, how do I not even know shit like this exists? Yeah. Yeah. The world it's awesome. is so It's so big. How do I not know this exists? (laughs) Exactly. Right. And that's largely also why I do this podcast, because, you know, there's so much going on in the art world that we just, I mean, we're all so kind of siloed and fragmented in how do we share information? You know, how do we coordinate? How do we collaborate? How do we network? How do we consolidate better because there's so much going on. It's hard to keep up. And some of that's natural. I mean, you're not going to always know everything going on, but I often find that the art world and artists, it's a very fragmented landscape. It's so fragmented. And by the way, I think part of that is you look at fragmented marketplaces that it's detrimental in many respects to the artist, right? Because there's, I mean, now there's, there's so many interesting information sources. Like if you want to track it down, you can, there's enough interesting podcasts and enough interesting stuff. But one of the reasons I'm doing mine, one, because I like learning from artists and I didn't find places to a certain extent where I was, no one's asking the questions I was curious about. Right. right? No one was asking what that cost you. How'd you do that? You spent money on what now? And the way people think about their business. I had one artist, a guy named Crovlet, who does these really cool collages. And one of his major channels is he goes and buys booths at at art fairs, right? And he spends a bunch Mm -hmm. of money and he's like, sometimes they work out financially, sometimes they don't. But the net long of it almost always does. Like if you look at the connections that were made. And so like that's one of his channels and models. And like each of these artists have like these very specific ways they go about building their business. And a lot of times it presents itself. Like in my case, I'm doing these installations and now they're coming in leaps and bounds. So my focus and attention is starting to move in that direction, right? Each one leads to three more. And then those, ironically, now that I do these big things, people are now looking at my actual artwork. The pendulum swings back the other way. And I'm trying to do what you said, which is trying to figure out how to convert those, like how to turn this into this. Yes, right. And so it's hard. They don't make it easy. It it is hard. And I think that's... Such an important message. We can wrap up with this because, you know, one of the things that artists, I think a lot of us, I mean, we live in a, we live in a, in a world where I think the mythology and the fantasy is that of the overnight success or the windfall and, oh, you know, follow these 10 steps or do these three things or whatever the case might be. And the truth of the matter is, man, it is hard work, no matter what you're in or what you're doing. If you're trying to do your work with integrity and quality and with real relevancy, whatever it is, it's hard, man. It's a slog. And and that's why you got to love it, man. That's why you've got to be in it. That's why it's got to be a calling because if it's your calling, it's not, you know, you, you wake up every day anxious to do it and you don't mind how hard it is. I'll actually take that a slightly different turn on that. Please do. Let me tell you, like calling or not, there's plenty of days I don't want to do it. Yeah, right? sure. And there's plenty of days if I waited for inspiration, I'd still be waiting. Right? <laughs> you just have to do the work. Like yep. you have to go in, you don't want to paint. That's the day you need to paint. Like I don't want to go to the gym. That's the day I got to work out. You don't want to do this. That's the day. Like to a certain extent, you have to schedule it. So yep. one of the things that I've tried, to, and I'm horrible at this, but I've tried it and it's working pretty well. Mm-hmm. I used to do all my 
stuff I hated work in the mornings. Mm. And then when I had some free time in the afternoon after I got through the slog, yeah. I would then do some art. Right. right. So I was tired yeah. and beat up and whatever. A reward. Yeah. Right. Right. As a reward. Right. Right. Because I'll, then I'll do it. Right. And then half the time I didn't do it and whatever. And so <laughs> right. what I've tried to do now is I now try to schedule my days where I block my creative time in the morning. Mm. And try to do that first while I'm still fresh and thinking interesting and like yeah. try to have that, those creative times in that just after my first cup of coffee, after like my morning shtick and then save the, the garbage stuff to the after, like the save the shipping and the sales calls and the other stuff until the afternoon. I'm not a hundred percent with it yet, but it's definitely improving my workflow mm-hmm. for sure. Well, and I appreciate what you're saying. Cause I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to schedule our responsibilities and we do have to honor that schedule. And it's fine to test and try and and reschedule and see what works and see what doesn't and adjust. And that's fine. But to your point about inspiration, I mean, I think Chuck Close said it best. Inspiration is for amateurs, man. I mean, you have to get in the studio and work and work and work and work. And eventually you find brilliance and eventually you get lucky. You have to do the work. There's no way around it. Claudine, I am so grateful, man, that you took time out of your creative schedule to come and chop it up with me here today. No, it was an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I love when people just let me ramble on and on. (laughs) Well, please come back. You will come back. I wish we could ramble on longer. Sadly, I have a hard stop, so I'm being selfish here, but would love for you to come back on. You know, let's get together. I don't know when I'm going to be in Miami next, but I will be sure to let you know we're in LA. So please let us know when you're coming this way. I will for sure. All right, my friend. Well, you have a beautiful afternoon. Hang tight. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to hit the off button. We'll chat a little bit more offline. Here we go. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.